Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is John Lenshovsky. I'm president of the Institute. I'd like to welcome you all here for a most uh, felicitous occasion. Um, for those of you who are new to IWP, um, we are an independent graduate school uh, of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs uh, in, in statecraft and international affairs, in statecraft and national security. In, we have the first uh, master's program in strategic intelligence studies outside the U.S. government. Uh, we, we have, uh, a, a, each of these are two-year programs, but we also have an 18-month program that was designed for people in the armed forces who can't take any more than 18 months for study. We have a, an executive master's program for one year. We have 17 graduate certificate programs, and we have the nation's first professional doctoral program in national security. Um, our faculty are mostly scholar practitioners, uh, ambassadors, military officers, intelligence officers, uh, foreign aid officials, uh, people who have done public diplomacy, political warfare, strategic influence, all the different things that are actually done in the world. Um, our student body, our, our uh, Half of them are, are recent college grads, and the other half are mid-career professionals. Um, and the, in many agencies of the government send their students here. Uh, the armed forces do. Um, the army uh, sends its colonels here as uh, senior war college fellows in lieu of going to war college. And then this last week, the Navy approved all five of our master's programs as uh, uh, satisfying the educational requirements for professional certification in information operations and intelligence. So we are, are having a lot of fun uh, teaching things that virtually none of the other schools in the region or in the country have taught, and insofar as they do, they are copying us. So uh, uh, anyway, uh, we are particularly uh, interested in uh, all sorts of uh, issues and regions of the world. We have a center here called the Center for Intermarium Studies. Uh, intermarium means the lands between the seas, uh, between the Baltic, the Black, and the Adriatic Seas. And as many of you may know, the presidents of Poland and Croatia not long ago launched a, uh, the so-called Three Seas Initiative, which is designed to bring many of the countries in that region into closer connection with one another, uh, whether it be educational, cultural, uh, scientific relations, whether it is um, an electrical grid, transportation, uh, or particularly energy uh, interactions. Um, and, uh, and we here have actually our own mini Three Seas initiative because we're trying to recruit students from the many countries 
in that region uh, who can come here, get to know America better, uh, get to know, we can get to know them and their cultural and strategic perspectives better, and then they can get to know each other here in a place that's different than their own home stomping grounds. Uh, so, uh, insofar as any of you have connections with any of the countries in that region, and I think some of you do, I just wanted you to be aware of this because we think it's in the mutual interest of the United States and the countries of that region to have better contacts uh, and educational you know, and educational exchanges uh, are a very big part of this. The U.S. government made major investments in, uh, in educational, cultural, and other kinds of exchanges with the, our, our new NATO allies uh, in, in, the, in the 1950s in order to build an Atlantic community. We have not done the same kind of thing uh, with the countries of Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, in the spirit of our interest in this part of the world, uh, it's, it gives me a great pleasure to introduce uh, Yaroslav Martiniuk. Uh, he is the author of this new book, Monterosa, Memoir of an Accidental Spy. And uh, Yaroslav is a former energy economist uh, with the OECD. Uh, he is a sociologist also by profession. Um, the thing that particularly attracted me to his background is the fact that he was a former research analyst for Radio Liberty and its Soviet area audience and opinion research office in Paris during the, during the 1980s where he was responsible for coordinating the work of 50 Russian-speaking interviewers who would conduct uh, unorthodox uh, public opinion polling with visitors from the Soviet Union. Um, and this it was some of the most interesting cultural intelligence work that was being done by anybody associated with government, although RFERL were uh, you know, private, independent organizations, but completely government funded. Um, I, used to, I used to study the results of these interviews very closely myself when I was working in the State Department, in the European Bureau, and then working for Under Secretary Eagleburger, and then in my own capacity uh, working on Soviet affairs in the National Security Council for President Reagan. And uh, I, I found that we, we learned all sorts of stuff from this uh, remarkable project in which you were involved that we were not learning from our uh, intelligence services uh, or from our diplomats. Uh, and and, and it is, it is actually, there is astonishing information that came out of all of this. And, uh, and, and I just was bursting with admiration for the people who were doing this. And so I just wanted to say that to you, uh, Yaroslav, uh, because uh, what you did, I think, was very important. As many of you may recall that the great Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, described our broadcasters uh, 
the Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, and Radio Liberty as the most powerful weapons the United States possessed in the Cold War. Uh, I believe that he was exactly correct. Uh, I think that this was an essential part of our, be our ability, that this research effort in which you were involved was an essential part of our ability to understand uh, the, the culture, the mentality, the current political and economic and other conditions uh, behind the Iron Curtain, uh, and to be able, there, therefore, to connect with the peoples uh, of the Soviet Empire in a much more effective way. Uh, scratch your favorite foreign policy expert in Washington and ask that person if they can um, explain what Solzhenitsyn was talking about, and I don't think that you will get an, in, an intellectually satisfying uh, response. Because we don't care about public diplomacy, cultural intelligence, strategic influence in this country, and I think that these are instruments of national power that have to be studied much more closely uh, and carefully than they are. Yaroslav speaks five languages. Um, during his multiple careers, he's traveled to every country in continental Europe. He's visited all of the republics of the former Soviet Union. As a Ukrainian-born American, his life story includes uh, a narrow escape from communism at the end of World War II, life within post-war Germany, and finally immigration to the United States. Uh, it's a great pleasure for me to turn the podium over to you. Well, thank you very much, John, for such a wonderful introduction. And uh, let me say what a great pleasure it is to be here at the Institute of World Politics. And I feel particularly honored to share this venue with many of the distinguished speakers and scholars who have been here before me. Uh, at one of the last lectures I attended at the IWP, was uh, a book signing by Admiral John Lehman, formerly uh, Secretary of Navy under Reagan administration. He wrote a book called Oceans Ventured, Winning the Cold War at Sea, where, where he revealed the role of U the US Navy played during the Reagan administration in bringing down the quote unquote evil empire. One of the reasons he gave for writing the book is that nobody else did. And that is precisely the reason why I have chosen to write this Monte Rosa. It is a story of a little known research unit in Paris called Soviet Area Audience and Opinion Research, and a chapter of Cold War history that has never been told in such lucid detail. Uh, I want to begin by telling you that last November I attended a conference uh, of, sponsored by the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation at the Library of Congress. And there were uh, roughly 35 different panels, it was a three-day conference, 35 different panels, uh, sorry, eight different panels with 35 distinguished 
scholars and speakers. And if there was a message that one was able to take away from this conference, it was that 100 years of communisms have produced 100 million dead. And the, there is a whole generation of young people who know very little or nothing about this chapter of history. And at the same time, polls taken by Victims of Communism Foundation and Pew Research uh, showed that half of the millennials would like to see socialism in the United States and one-fifth would actually vote for a communist candidate. Now, uh, before I continue, I'd like to share with you an anecdote that was popular in the 90s after the fall of the, the Soviet Union in 1991. Question, what comes after capitalism? Answer, socialism. What comes after socialism? Uh, communism, what comes after communism? Alcoholism. Thank you. No, no. no, socialism, communism, and then finally alcoholism. Okay. So, uh, Monterosa consists of 40 essays, vignettes, covering uh, roughly the first 50 years of my life from the outbreak of World War II until the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. Two-thirds of the narrative takes place in France, where I worked for 12 years, first for the International Energy Agency, and then for, uh, for Radio Liberty. And 10 chapters of the book describe in detail uh, my undercover research work on behalf of Radio Liberty. Uh, however, before I continue, a few biographical uh, facts about me. I graduated from the University of Illinois uh, Champaign-Urbana uh, Business School in 1963. I entered the U.S. Army Intelligence School at Fort Allibert, where I was trained to analyze military intelligence gathered by the U-2 spy planes. And by chance, I became a specialist in spying from the air. The U-2, by the way, was an amazing aircraft. And after 60 years of service, the plane is still operational. Next, I worked for Amoco Oil uh, uh, for 15 years in Chicago. And in 1979, I had the good fortune to be appointed principal administrator of the oil industry division of the International Energy Agency in Paris a position that carried with it a diplomatic status. In the mid-1980s, my language skills, uh, uh, because of my language skills, I more morphed into what quote-unquote Cold War warrior and became involved in a little-known but crucial side skirmish of the war, a, sto a story that has never been told any by anyone anywhere. As some of you I see there are a couple of former Radio Liberty people here. Uh, no, Radio Liberty's broadcasts undermined the Soviet Union from within, a process that was not unlike the slow, steady tunneling 
to bring down a fort, a seemingly impenetrable fortress. And from these vantage points, I was able to observe the empire's dying years, and fate placed me in a position to contribute uh, in a small way. Why Monte Rosa, you might ask? Uh, I answered this, this question in the first chapter where I, my first chapter of the memoir where I described two events that took place in the middle of August of 1991. Events that had a profound effect on my life. During the week I was climbing Switzerland's highest peak, the Soviet Union imploded. I call it my Motorosa moment, and I describe it as a confluence of events that lifted my body and my spirit to new heights, literally and metaphorically. And only a few days later, another landmark event took place on August 24, 1991. The Ukrainian Rada proclaimed independence, in effect signing USSR's death warrant. Uh, the memoir touches on a variety of subjects, too many to list here. It, it includes an autobiographical account of my family, uh, uh, the fate of my extended family in the Soviet gulags of Vorkuta and Kolyma, both death camps above the Arctic Circle. It's also a European travelogue and contains reflections on history, politics, economics, art, religion, and the significance of freedom and the phenomena of synchronicity. Uh, since I can't, cannot summarize the 400-page uh, book uh, in the time allowed, I'll focus on two aspects which I think will be of special interest to this audience. First, I want to tell you how a small unit of Radio Liberty called SAAOR in Paris carried out research with Soviet citizens in the West using highly unorthodox interviewing methodology that today is referred to as an undercover social science. This is the subject of 10 chapters of the book. And second, I'll, um, I'll tell you how my work, first in the International Energy Agency and then Radio Liberty in Paris, provided me with unique insights that helped me to explain the real reasons for the downfall of the evil empire. Uh, two chapters of the memoir, What Killed the Soviet Empire, and Unique Revelations and ins Insights expand on this theme. Many books have been written about, about the role of Radio Liberty and other Western broadcasters in penetrating the Iron Curtain with information. However, no one helped to tell the story of how our Paris-based unit carried out undercover interviewing, that is, find, finding and interviewing Soviet citizens temporarily in Western Europe. It was... Uh, Human intelligence, I like what uh, John's expression, cultural intelligence gathering effort aimed at uncovering the reality of life of ordinary citizens in the Soviet Union. The majority of so-called experts 
did not believe that such an exercise was possible, and that's why none of them even attempted it. Uh, but contrary to conventional wisdom during the, during the 1980s, thousands of Soviet citizens, for one reason or another, traveled to Western Europe. They included diplomats, entertainers, sailors, businessmen, but the vast majority of visitors we interviewed came on cruise ships that originated in Leningrad and Odessa. And on the northern, northern end of the stream, they, when they came from the Leningrad, which is off the map, they took a, a tour of the Baltic Sea and the destination was Copenhagen, where we had 12 interviewers ready to intercept and talk to these people. On the southern front, the, the uh, cruise ships left in Odessa, went through the Baltic, Dardanelles, uh, Bosphorus Dardanelles, went around the uh, Greek island Cyclades and ended up in Piraeus near Athens. There we had 10 Russian-speaking interviewers. And by the way, an interesting uh, sideline, uh, the, the, the Greek interviewers were Russian speakers because they lived in Uzbekistan most of their lives and were only were allowed to leave after the Helsinki Accords. And so we had native Russian speakers working in Athens, and this was an absolutely fascinating interviewing point. And uh, two or three chapters of the book go into a lot of details, which I don't have to write time to go right now. So, overall, there were 12 interviewing points in Europe from Helsinki down to Athens. And the interviewing points included uh, Hamburg, Berlin, Paris, London, uh, Paris, London, Vienna, Rome, and Athens, the port of Piraeus, Athens, where they, the tourists came out by the thousands, literally by the thousands. So it was like, like shooting um, uh, fish in a barrel. Um, so, um, the size of the operation was huge. On average, we conducted 5,000 interviews a year. And over the years, we accumulated a, a database of 50,000 interviewers. Interviews. Um, my, my former boss, Gene Parta, had a, came out with a book called The Hidden Listener, where he, he presents the results of all our findings. And I think Irena knows Gene Parta very well. Um, all of the interviewers were native Russian speakers trained to find and engage unsuspecting Soviet citizens and extract information on various topics of interest to Radio Liberty Management in Munich and agencies in Washington. In addition to estimating the size of the audience says to Western radios, we, uh, we poll Soviet citizens about the attitudes on such delicate issues as the war in Afghanistan, the Chernobyl catastrophe, perestroika, and myriad of other issues. In brief, we were conducting polling without the respondent knowing that he or she was being interviewed. And I explained this 
in the chapter called Modus Operandi in a very detailed fashion. Uh, the information we gathered uh, was passed to management uh, in Radio Liberty in Munich, as I said, and, the dis and decision makers at the highest level of U.S. government, including the State Department, Pentagon, and the CIA. The reports allow them to better understand what, uh, what the people inside the Soviet Union were actually thinking. In this respect, our work different from conventional analyses and analyses by the so-called experts, an array of Sovietologists, Kremlin watchers, academic sages, who try to discern hidden between-the-line messages from scrutinizing Soviet newspapers, Zvestia and Pravda. Now let me switch to the second uh, uh, theme of my presentation. What killed the Soviet Empire? The causes uh, behind the Soviet Union's disintegration were many and complex. And, and many of you probably know what they are. These were, however, there were, however, a number of reasons most historians, academic, either ignored or overlooked. Uh, so first, to be, just to give you a brief overview of what we know. To begin with, this, the system was, the Soviet system had a built-in structural defect. It depended on an inherently dysfunctional model tied to an unworkable social utopian ideology. Years of communist rule had choked the economy, stifled inflation, destroyed initiative, created mind-boggling inefficiencies and corruption at all levels. And the Soviet empire was dying under the weight of its, of its status, economic yoke, and contradictions, and the system was crumbling from within. When the Soviet elites, elites led by Gorbachev, realized the extent of the problems, they turned to the West for solutions. We, uh, he introduced glasnost, perestroika, uskorenie, perestroika, which translates roughly into openness, acceleration, and rebuilding. However, Gorbachev did the Gorbachev actually did the right things, but for the, for the wrong reasons. But because his overriding aim was to save communism and the Soviet Union. His staggering miscalculation eventually culminated in the death of the Soviet Union. I'll just go over very quickly uh, some of the uh, events preceding the collapse, which most of you are familiar with. And it all began with the, with the industrial arrest, unrest in Poland in 1980. At the same time, Karol Wojtyla was elected, uh, became, became Pope John II, and his prestige and inspirational, me inspirational message, Be Not Afraid, lifted the spirits of not only the, so the Polish people, but the entire Eastern Bloc. However, the event that mortally wounded the empire was the invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. 
After two years, the Soviets realized that the war is unwinnable and they did not know how to extricate themselves without losing face. Afghanistan, as we all know, was cemetery of empires and eventually became Soviet army's graveyard. After losing uh, the war in Afghanistan, Losing the war in Afghanistan forced the Soviets to abandon their outer empire, and their disastrous military campaign made them reluctant to send troops anywhere else. And without the implied threat of force, they were unable to hold on to the Eastern European satellites. Today, it's very clear that the loss of these satellites led to the crumbling of the wall and lifting of the Iron Curtain a development that eventually provoked the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And finally, one cannot dismiss the impact of uh, President Reagan's powerful speech when he called the Soviet Union an evil empire, as well as his memorable words at Berlin's Brandenburg Gate on June 12, 1987. With Gorbachev present, he said, Mr. Gorbachev opened this gate, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. So that's a prelude to a summary of what we, what is generally accepted and known. Now I'll turn to several factors which were either ignored or overlooked or simply not known, not considered in, in this. And I, I reduced them to three. First of all, the role of nationalism in the USSR. Second, the broadcast of radio liberty. And third, the gyrations in the world price of crude oil in the 70s and 1980s. The last one is the least known and least analyzed. And I'll cover that in detail. I should like to underscore that hardly any of the mainstream experts took consideration of these three factors to explain the breakup of the Soviet Union. And from my vantage point at the SAAOR, I became convinced that the defects of the empire were so grave, the internal contradictions so numerous, that it was only a matter of time before the whole rotten structure collapsed. That time came in 1991. The empire expired of what I would call a classic case of assisted suicide. <laughs> so now, now I'll turn to the nationalities question. Uh, the nationalities questions in the Soviet Union has been ignored by many experts and historians for many, for many years before and after the fall of the Soviet Union. With only very few exceptions, they believed that the Soviet Union had, once and for all, solved the nationalities problem and, vi and, and vis visualized the USSR as a large, happy family of nations. We at the SAAOR were studying nationalities issue as early as 1983, and our research showed that the Soviet Union was not at all a happy family of nations. And as some, some academics sympathetic to the Soviet Union, and that the nationalities problem in the Soviet Union 
was real and critical. Our research showed that, that uh, the problem was aggravated by Russian chauvinism. And uh, I, the chapters, insights, uh, uh, revelations and insights, I cite uh, I mean, a quote from uh, our research that we had actually uh, uh, come up with. There's quotes of our uh, uh, respondents. So, and feedback on this issue was, uh, was remarkably consistent, whether it was in Copenhagen or Paris or Vienna or Athens. But the academic community in the West was convinced that the march towards socialism would one day render nations obsolete. Uh, I'm just curious how many of you think this has a similar, a familiar ring today. In reality, the first scholar to have addressed the nationalities issue in a comprehensive way was Harvard's historian Sadiq Lohi in his seminal 2014 book, The Last Empire, where he documented how differences between Ukrainians and Russians created an obstacle to preserving the Union and the main reason for the disintegration of the USSR. I highly recommend this book. Um, how am I doing? Okay. Um, mainstream conventional wisdom maintained that differences between nationalities had been replaced by a new identity of the homo, homo sovieticus, the Soviet man. We at the ASSAO, <laughs> we at the SAAOR based on thousands of interviews with Soviet citizens discovered that the notion of Homo Sovieticus was a phantom. Now, uh, the second point I want to address is uh, the role of Radio Liberty. One of the major foreign broadcasters to the Soviet Union, this, the Soviets feared the most, was Radio Svoboda, Radio Liberty. The station broadcast in dozens of languages and addressed issues relevant to individual republics and their languages. Their broadcasts were, in per were particularly important in influencing attitudes and opinions to crises such as the war in Afghanistan, the Chernobyl nuclear power disaster in 1986. This was yet another, another case where the majority of experts came up short. A review of literature on this subject shows that hardly any of them even mentioned the role of Western broadcasters in general and, and radio liberty in particular. Western radios fought the tyrannical communist regimes with truth, the best form of propaganda. Uh, I'd like to also like to mention in passing the role of a CIA-funded program called uh, um, an extremely successful publishing and, and book distribution operation of sending Ukrainian and Polish small format books to Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union throughout the Cold War. The organization in New York was called Prolog, uh, and uh, in Paris it was uh, the Institut Literatsky, organizations that published two influential uh, magazines in Polish and Ukrainian. In 1985, I was personally 
uh, involved in smuggling books and uh, video cassette players across the Iron Curtain on behalf of Prologue director, the late Roman Kupczynski, an experience I described in a chapter called Mission to Warsaw. Finally, uh, a rarely, uh, rarely mentioned factor that contributed to the demise of the Soviet, Soviet Union was the drastic price of crude oil in the 1980s. The reason I was able to see the implications of this was because during the first half of 1980s, I worked for the International Energy Agency, where I, my main responsibility was to keep track of worldwide crude oil prices and supply, including the Soviet Union. And one of the chapters describes how I managed to get uh, detailed information about Soviet production. As in Russia today, oil was the lifeblood of the Soviet economy. The, Soviets de the Soviet Union depended on oil revenue to subsidize wheat imports and to feed its population. It's not an exaggeration to say that the revenue from oil sales kept the communist, quote-unquote, beast alive until the 1980s. By mid-decade, when the Saudi Arabia flooded the crude oil prices, the price of crude oil had dropped from $40 a barrel to $10 a barrel, and plummeting oil prices deprived the Soviet Union of oil revenue, its life support system. Only a few experts in the West were able to grasp the meaning of this development, probably because they were unaware to the extent to which the Soviet dependent, the Soviet dependent economy relied on revenue for its survival. They assumed that because the USSR had muddled through 60 years, it would survive another 60. There was a consensus that the Soviet Union was too big to fail and a collapse was therefore unimaginable. So just to summarize a, a very a complex history, the drop of crude oil prices followed by a decline in production created conditions that made the Soviet Union unable to subsidize cheap energy to Eastern Europe. This led to a loss of control of the satellites and culminated in the fall of the wall in 1989. The disappearance of the Iron Curtain led to the collapse of the entire Soviet Europe, Eastern European Empire and a prelude to the disintegration of the failing nuclear power. No amount of glasnost and perestroika could have prevented its inevitable demise. Now, just in conclusion, I, uh, while I was working uh, uh, in Munich in 1993, at the time, Irina Khalupa remembers very well. I don't know if you attended this meeting, but I had the good fortune to hear Robert Conquest address an audience of RFERL Research Institute analysts and journalists. Conquest was one of the few specialists who went against the grain, questioning the views of establishment academics and experts 
In particular, he criticized Western intellectuals for blindness regarding the Soviet Union and argued that Stalinism was a logical consequence of Marxist-Leninism rather than aberration from, uh, from true communism. For his views, he was vilified by the progressive left. After opening up of the Soviet archives in 1991, detailed information was released. Supporting conquest conclusion and conclusions and view on history, he was one of the few historians who lived long enough to see his vision and life's work vindicated by history. Uh, maybe Maybe some of you know, Kankulovos was, was also a po poet and known for his witty limericks about communism. And one of my favorites was The Compact History of Soviet Union, which resonates as follows. There was once a great Marxist called Lenin, who did two or three million men in. That's a lot to have done in. But where he did one in, that great Marxist Stalin did ten in. <laughs> Conquest lecture was followed by the usual question and answer session where I was able to ask, what would you like to tell people like Jerry Howe and his ilk who got the Soviet Union wrong? He had a ready response. I told you so, you effing fools. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm ready to take questions. Let's see if I can answer them. What would you... Uh, attribute the, seems to be a wave of nostalgia for the Soviet Union that is occurring over the last, and it's progressing within the last 20 years. It started off very slow, and now it's to, to the point that it's supportive of actions that are not unlike what was taking yeah. place in the Soviet Union. Well, uh, the Soviet Union o over the years has changed, and uh, the there was a re-education going on. It started with you know Putin's famous words that so the greatest the disaster of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union, and that was translated into uh, textbooks and instruction manual. Media made a lot of it, and uh, then of course. Uh, People saw the disparity of the wealth of the oligarchs and the poor people in the countryside. And in, during the Soviet ways, it was more, in a way, more equitable, even, even though it did work. But, they, and, but I think most of the people that yearn for those days are older people who are have, who have, who not in touch with reality. You know, I don't think the younger. Uh, younger uh, uh, population is, uh, is yearning for the Soviet days. Irina? The people that you spoke to, uh, I'm 
those interviews. They were, after all, elites to some extent. They weren't the regular Joe Schmoes. Not everybody got to go on a cruise out of the Soviet yeah. Union. They had to be carefully vetted, and I'm sure that they had KGB minders no matter where they went. So how did you, yes. how did you get past them? And then how were you able to use the data that they gave you to sort of expand it and, and to see in their responses the responses of the regular people that never got to go on. Okay. Well, first of all, uh, this this was this is conventional wisdom that only the elites got to travel, communist party. Actually, that was true in the sixties and seventies. In the eighties, uh, they it all started to change, and the system introduced a way of rewarding. Uh, what, what's known as zaslujami, the deserved workers who behaved and, and uh, you know, did a good job. And, and they were rewarded with this by cruise ships. And like I said, the bulk of our interviewers were with uh, these ordinary people. Uh, and on top of it, it was not only from, from Moscow or, or Russia-oriented. You had Ukrainians, Caucasians, the Balts, Central Asians were all allowed to come out. Now, um, when as soon as these people stepped off the boat, there was always a minder, a, a KGB escort who said, "Be careful! There are CIA agents out there who are going to try to uh, cause me." Uh, to make you uh, work for them, you know, the story. And the people said, yes, yes, we understand. I, I witnessed this myself. As soon as they got past the gate, our people approached them with all kinds of innocent questions, and they were, especially if they're, uh, because they were speaking in Russian, they opened up their hearts and minds to every question that was offered open, it was so easy to persuade them to participate in an interview by simply offering them a glass of wine and inviting them for coffee, because they only had pennies. Or in the uh, chapter in, the, in my Copenhagen work, they, the, they all steered to these cheap shops where they could buy electronics, jeans, with the little pennies that they had. And our people were already there, ready to offer help and say something, you know, for example, you know, Sony is a good good station, but a good radio, but it's expensive. Uh, if you buy a Sharp, it's less expensive. Oh, really? And, and they engage them in a conversation. And it was, they had a lot of experience, and, you know, this was a, a result of long trial and error, how to engage them, make them feel at ease. And you never start the interview with a question like, what Western radio do you listen to? <laughs> you know? And, and one, the chapter of bonus operandi has a list of 12 different points, what to do and what not to do. Did I answer all, all of those second parts of your question? Yes. What yeah. role did the Russian church have in the establishment, maintenance, and collapse of the Soviet Union? I, uh, as far as I know, uh, the Russian church was part, you know, 
of the system. Uh, they were, you know, KGB operatives. And uh, maybe there was a number of be some believers, you know, but uh, before, uh, during the Soviet times, uh, they were not, not a factor. It's only after this fall that, uh, you know, the Russian Orthodox Church was resurrected and they're very active today in, the, in um, Russian imperialistic policy, like, uh, um, like we see today. This, uh, anybody else? Yaro? Yeah. Uh, you didn't mention VOA, but uh, I worked with VOA in the 80s and we also did things like that. But anyway, uh, the question is, how do you see the things developing uh, this weekend? Oh, with the talks, with the talks going on. You're 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 asking me to, uh, to enter the, the realm of prophecy, and I'm I'm not a Nostradamus, I can tell you. Uh, but your original first question, you didn't mention VOA. I said Western broadcasters, and this included VOA, BBC, Radio Israel, Radio Radio Canada, International Canada, Canada Radio Vatican. The, yes, uh, the VOA was an important station, but they were they were uh, seen as a propaganda station, a voice of the United States, and they took them such. And that's why the Soviets rarely jammed Voice of America like they did VOA. Uh, throughout most of the Cold War, Radio Liberty was heavily jammed. But still, man, people managed to listen through manipulating on the shortwaves, leaving the cities, and a lot of the information did get through. And that's the distinction between the two. Uh, I, and I, we did a lot of research on the perception of uh, VOA, BBC, and other stations. It, yes? What would you suggest in terms of uh, resurrecting more focus on public diplomacy uh, with the demise in uh, 2000 of uh, the, uh, um, USIA. USIA, thank you, with USIA and then the shifting of VOA, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Uh, I know that right now, uh, current time TV is, is brand new. It's like a year old. And they are broadcasting in Russian and other languages to former Soviet areas, specifically to counter RT TV and the disinformation that's coming out of that. But what would you see that could be much more proactive? If we no, I, I agree. No I agree. I think uh, uh, organizations like RFRL, VOA have a history of success uh, in, in penetrating, uh, getting the message to the so to the Soviet people, and they could do it again. But today there there are different uh, problems. I'll give you an example. None. Uh, None of the major broadcasters is allowed, is being rebroadcast. I'm talking about radio. Uh, Voice of America had a, a very good television program in Russia. 
this is already like 15 years ago. Well, one day the uh, Moscow Bureau got a letter that there's going to be a tax inspection, and that was the end of, of uh, Voice of America uh, uh, television programming. Radio Liberty also, you know, they were, uh, they were uh, persona non grata, and uh, they stopped uh, stop BBC had a similar experience. They simply closed down uh, the, the operation. So there is, no, there is no way to transmit the message other than through the internet. And even there, it's being controlled. Yes, John. I remember reading some extraordinary facts in the product of your research. I'll give you one or two examples. In one case, it was the testimony of somebody who had been working on underground industrial facilities that had the capability of assembling nuclear missiles and putting warheads on them, tunneling them underground to a, an underground silo where they would be in a position to launch, where the ground above the silo was completely undisturbed. There was no digging. Everything was tunneled from underneath. And there was allegedly a nuclear missile silo uh, at the end of a long tunnel after this industrial uh, assembly point. And so if it had to be launched, it would simply uh, pop the cork, so to speak, uh, with maybe three feet of soil above the silo. Oh my goodness. And now this was one of the testimonies that came out of your, your team's research. Uh, my question is, uh, was, did you do anything to verify these types of allegations that were made by some of your interviewees. There, there, were, there were other ones. There, there, was a, there was a one where uh, somebody was coming to testify about the medical conditions in Soviet hospitals and how the average amount of food you got in such a hospital was about 50 cents worth per day. But that was the official amount. Yes. But the, the actual amount was less than that because the cooks in the Soviet hospitals were the, poor, the poorest paid cooks mm -hmm. in the whole country, and they stole the food out of a sense of justice to be recompensed for their work. So the patients in the hospitals had to depend upon family and friends to get the food. And so the food was being stored in the hospital rooms in an unsanitary way, and this was why there were rats and vermin and all sorts of things that were making these hospitals extremely unhygienic. Uh, anyway, there are all sorts of these types of facts. And I'm wondering, did you ever work on verification of some of this stuff? Uh, unfortunately, no. Our, our mission was to collect this cultural human intelligence and pass it on to other people. And we know that a lot of this information did get through to the right people. For example, uh, the Pentagon, uh, there's a memoir written by, I forget the name, that 
how they use our, our information about such things as food availability and prices. We collected information about these things throughout the years, and this gave us the best picture of how bad things were. You know, uh, we the quotes that I have, I can, I can read you a couple of quotes, but I don't think I, I have the time right now. You know, that the availability of meat in the Soviet Union was almost non-existent. The first, the best cuts went to the elites, and then the people that worked in, the, in, the, in, the, in these factory, in these uh, packing houses. What got to the stores was bones and fat, if you can find it. Uh, then, for another example that comes to mind is that the butter they 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 had there was a shortage of butter, and they were buying butter in vast quantities from Finland. The butter that came in, the best parts of the butter also went to the elites. The rest was diluted with oil and margarine that literally stank and uh, people had to use this because there was nothing else. Sausages uh, contained, they estimate, 15% meat and the other rest was uh, filler. This is the kind of information we pay, we pay, we passed on to all these people. Whether whether they were able to verify these things, the only verification we were able to get is uh, feedback on the uh, audience on the on the uh, quality of radio signals in the Soviet Union. We had people over there that either confirmed or or questioned what we were reporting as. Quality of radio uh, signal was extremely important. And our engineers in Munich and in uh, Spain, where the uh, transmitters were, adjusted the transmission signals in, in a way that to maximize, you know, uh, to, to uh, improve the, the uh, radio signals. That was the only kind of verification uh, that, that we, we were able to, to carry out. Yes? Yeah, as an energy economist uh, during your years at the International Energy Agency, uh, Jerry, uh, what oil market, uh, oil economics factors, and mechanisms, and projections indicated to you uh, the progressively weakening base underpinning the Soviet Union? Well, uh, I actually have a little section in, in a memoir uh, where the only people that had an idea of the status of, of the Soviet oil industries were folks at the CIA. And uh, how they managed to get the information, I never asked. But one of the things that they were very certain of, that the Soviets were using very primitive recovery te uh, uh, techniques. Well, almost all of their production was of the kind we call primary recovery. That is, you drill a well and whatever comes out in the beginning, you know, it, it comes out under its own pressure. But that generally, primary recovery extracts only 10 to 15% of a potential reservoir. After they, uh, and this was done on a massive scale because they didn't have the secondary recovery techniques 
in that oil companies in the West, which was you know pumping gas and, and uh, water into the reservoir to build up the pressure to extract more. And even with secondary te recovery techniques, you still had half the reservoir. The, the, uh, at that, this is the eight, uh, 70s. And because I worked for the oil company, I, I was familiar. They would, tertiary recovery techniques actually involved setting fires underneath in the reservoir to, to uh, gather all the remaining oil and pump it out. This was in the 70s. Today, they have techniques that are unbelievable. They have, you know, uh, sideways drilling, uh, incredible um, uh, underground photography, seismological data that we didn't even dream of. And uh, thank you for this. Don worked with me uh, at the International Energy Agency in Paris. We, had, we just had a reunion a couple of weeks ago. That was a super affair. Thank you, Dan. Anybody else? Yes, please. Uh, can you maybe talk a little bit about how the quality of the data that you were able to get changed when the Soviet Union fell apart? Now, on the one hand, when you were doing these interviews in all these boards and cities, there's certain elements called Duggery or Somatic, but when the Soviet Union fell apart, you got to travel to these countries. Yes. You got to do focus groups, you know, um, you got to do open polling the way it was done in the West. And how is the quality of information different? I'm glad you asked that question. Um, and then Gene, how was it used? Gene Parta describes this very easily. We, uh, we used, in the Soviet days, we used modeling. It was called Bayesian modeling, developed by MIT. And it's uh, compensated for uh, demographics uh, that, of people that were not there. For example, most of the interviews were done with males. And we tried to have a gender balance. And so what was acceptable to us was 70% 70, 70 male, 30% female. And we, we told interviewers, go and talk to women. Um, the when the uh, borders opened up and we were able to do in-country research, we compared the numbers we had in, in the Soviet days with the new numbers, and amazingly, Gene Parta writes about this in his book, The Hidden Listener. They dovetailed. There, there was continuity, and it. It's validated all our research from the 80s that we were doing something right. Grace? First of all, thank you for this fascinating uh, talk and for this wonderful book. I really recommend it to anybody. It's a great uh, book. Now, um, as I understand it, Radio Liberty focused on reaching the ordinary people, and that's how you got to them through the uh, interviewing them coming off the boats. On the other hand, the beginning of your talk, you said that uh, what brought down the Soviet Union was mainly internal crumbling, uh, that it was an internal disaster that uh, couldn't be sustained. Um, a, a great part of my career has been dealing with think tanks and academics. 
in the international field who only focus on the elites. Uh, but maybe, maybe they, they're justified because it seems to me from what you say, the people, the ordinary people didn't really bring down the Soviet Union. It was a matter of the elites. So I have a hard time persuading my colleagues that the ordinary people matter when you have dictators at such an authoritarian regime. Well, uh, I think as I explained, uh, the movement, let's say, in Poland was by ordinary people. Mm -hmm. The nationalities question had nothing to do with elites. It's the way the people felt. And that reached a groundswell mm -hmm. and gave impetus to, uh, you know, uh, the extent they were, especially after Chernobyl, the average Soviet citizen stopped believing in what this Soviet media was telling them. Because as you all know, the accident uh, the, the, uh, that happened on April 26th, Soviet press didn't mention that. In fact, they said these are these exaggerated stories of the West. People listened to the radio, Voice of America, uh, Radio Liberty, etc. And what happened on May 1st is that people in Kyiv, there was a military parade, a May, May Day 1st parade. But the people realized that the elites, Verkhushka as they say, were sending their kids to Crimea. Okay? And that's when finally people put two and two together. So this is a one big lie. And that's, it's, the whole thing started with ordinary citizens uh, ceasing to believe in the Soviet line. May I, may I just add yes. that uh, we shouldn't forget that the, uh, the coal miners went on strike in the Donbass and the Kuzbass, mm -hmm. uh, and eventually a million people took to the streets in Moscow. That was not the nomenclatura. Mm -hmm. uh, you had huge demonstrations in Vilnius, in Tashkent, in Tbilisi. Gorbachev deployed uh, poison gas and he used it against the demonstrators in Tbilisi. And, they, and mm -hmm. these people were slaughtered by, uh, by, by, by the Spetsnaz troops with sharpened military shovels. Uh, there, there was all kinds of, uh, there was all kinds of activity of ordinary so, uh, so it makes me wonder, for instance, on your own, in your own faculty, how many sociologists and anthropologists that deal with the local people do you have on your permanent faculty? Uh, I taught for 30 plus years at SICE, and there were zero. There were a lot of economists. There was nobody, nobody teaching about what, what happens at the grassroots level. And I'm sure that's true of uh, the Columbia program, Harvard program. We have somebody exactly who does that, uh -huh, good. and uh, he works on hearts and minds uh, operations, aid operations. He has his own NGO that works on um, uh, on trying to give assistance to the poverty-stricken Muslim communities in the southern Philippines. Uh, he brings them education aid, uh, agricultural aid, medical aid. Uh, the key to it all is is good cultural intelligence, cross-cultural knowledge, 
uh, development of long, long-range uh, relationships of trust over time, uh, and uh, there are very few people in this business. But uh, I know well. He he teaches this stuff, and mm -hmm. he is a practitioner in the field as well. Right. His name is Al Santoli, and uh, mag magnificent, magnificent. Uh, he is the heir to a lot of the the work of General Edward Lansdale and Rufus Phillips, who was with USAID and perhaps other three-letter agencies, for all I know. Anyway, uh, doing doing that kind of work. So. If you will permit me, uh, I just want to read you a, a page from, from the book, just to illustrate that the book is not only about the Soviet Union, uh, it has a lot of other things. Uh, when I uh, moved to Paris, I joined the, uh, I became a member of the Ukrainian diaspora, and uh, the offices, uh, uh, there was a Ukrainian church uh, with the square Taras Shevchenko, where a lot of the Ukrainians gathered. And uh, and after church on Sundays, we would go to a place called Café Bonaparte. And some people who didn't go to church called it St. Bonaparte's. <laughs> anyway, so, um, and we had amazing people coming over there to show up, you know, artists, dissidents, intellectuals. Many, many, and I described this. But I want to read to you, uh, take the liberty of reading uh, a short chapter about uh, a, small, a section here. Um, many, many Parisians consider Place Saint-Germain-de-Pré, which is where the Ukrainian church was and the uh, Café Bonaparte, uh, to be the center not only of Paris, but of Europe, and by extension, the world. It had been the epicenter of intellectual life since the days when Jean-Paul Sartre, Simon de Beauvoir, and Herbert Camus frequented Le Democo and Café Fleur. After decades of patronizing the Café Bonaparte, I, I discovered a fascinating factoid. Jean-Paul Sartre lived with his mother in one of the apartments above Café Bonaparte. A small third floor residence overlooking the square until he died on April 15, 1980. Sartre's death was a momentous event. The mood in Paris was somber. Parisians deep in mourning at the passing of their revered intellectual. Uh, I just, I'm going to skip this uh, to get to the point quickly. Sartre was a communist sympathizer and once famously said, every anti-communist is a dog. He was a fraud who took a whole generation of French philosophy students, intellectuals, and snapped for a ride. In 1947, he learned that the slave labor camps existed in the Soviet Union. He promptly declared that Soviet government should not be condemned for this because Soviet government in principle is against slave labor. This fuzzy ball of fur, as historian Paul, uh, Paul Johnson painted him, was responsible for giving credibility 
to one of the most sadistic systems in the history of mankind. He was living proof that the Maxine, that most of the true believers in, in communism were intellectuals living in the West, while east of the Iron Curtain hardly anyone believed. And yet, the French had shed a sea of tears over the death of their genius, evocative of masses mourning over Stalin in 1953. Karl Marx claimed that religion is the opium of the people. But in one of the, one of the great works of the 20th century political reflection, another French philosopher, Raymond Aron, cleverly modified this aphorism by observing Marxism is the opium of the intellectuals. Thank you.